All right, Parashat Kitisa. It's um, it's a heavy parsha. There's a lot going on in the parsha. Um, it's perhaps most famously known for being the parsha of the greatest scandal that happened in Jewish history. So today mm-hmm. we're suffering from the scandal. Mm-hmm. Uh, eagle, huh? Mm-hmm. The, the, the eagle Azov, the golden calf, and the Jewish people, they couldn't handle it. 40 days after Sinai, they start serving idols. What's going on with these guys, right? Mm-hmm. However, however, you just look at the name of the parsha, Kitisa, which means when you will lift up. Literally, I mean, what it's really saying over there is that when you will start, when they're going to count the Jewish people, but the term that it's used, that's used in the Torah is Kitisa, when you will elevate, you will elevate the heads of the Jewish people. And the name of a parsha, you know, has a major impact on the entire the entire content of the parasha. So it's kind of interesting that the parasha that speaks about the greatest scandal in Jewish history should give off the vibe of something that's elevated and positive, etc. Now, um, this was just a teaser because the purpose of this uh, class is not going to be to discuss that issue of the parasha. There are other, there are many, many talks of the Rebbe, uh, perhaps some of them from my favorites, that deal with um, with the the interesting. And, more, and very powerful narrative that is that is communicated to us in this week's parasha. But today we are going to focus on an oft-overlooked detail in the parasha. And that is um, the instructions of how the Jewish people should build the sink, the washing basin for the Holy Temple. So the past two parashas we're learning about the tabernacle, the mishkan, the sanctuary that the Jewish people built in the desert. Uh, that sanctuary was temporary, and then eventually, as it came to the land of Israel, uh, they had different formats of this Mishkan until they finally came to Jerusalem, and King Solomon built the temple. So the basic template of the Mishkan was used in all the sanctuaries and temples that the Jewish people built uh, up until the end, um, until the Second Holy Temple. So you always had the Holy of Holies, which contained the Holy Ark, which had the two tablets in it. In fact, in the Second Temple era, the Ark wasn't there, but there was still a Holy of Holies. In front of that, there was another room that was called the Holy, the Kaidash, or simply the Heichal, the Sanctuary. Over there, you had the Menorah, the, the, the table of the showbread, and the inner altar, the golden altar. And that was for incense. They wouldn't bring any sacrifices on that altar. It was only for incense. That was offered twice a day. And then outside in the courtyard, you had the altar, which was used for sacrifices. Slaughter sacrifices, sprinkle the blood on the altar and burn either the entire animal or certain parts of the animal on the altar. And they were, and this altar was famous for having that large ramp, a huge ramp that went up to the top of the altar. And the, so that, what? This, no, Sulam is a, is a, is a lamp. Got it. Okay, I, uh, who am I to argue with uh, with Hebrew language? Look, a sulam is a ladder, a kevesh, kevesh is a, a ramp. So when you go up with a ramp here, you say, I'm going up to the altar, I'm going up to the, huh? <laughs> All right, anyway, so that was the famous altar that was on the outside. All of these, um, how do you say, all of these uh, pieces of furniture, had a certain service that was done with them. I mean, besides for the Ark, the Holy Ark, they didn't do a specific service with it. Besides for Yom Kippur, they would do the incense right next to the Holy Ark. They would sprinkle the blood towards the Holy Ark. Uh, but otherwise, 
service in the temple was done on the menorah. They light the menorah every day. They would clean out the candles. Um, the showbread, a service was done on it once a week. They would bring a new set of bread uh, to be there from Shabbos to Shabbos. And then the inside altar, that's where they offer the incense. And the main drama was happening outside in the big altar. We're done. We're not done. This week's parish, we learned about one other piece of furniture that was added to the, the what's it called? The courtyard, right? One other piece of furniture that we need in the courtyard. That is the kior, which is the wash basin. Now, this wash basin was not really about a specific service. It was about the preparation for service. So let's see source number one, page three. God spoke to Moses saying, make a copper wash basin along with a copper base for it. Place it between the altar and the tent of the sanctuary and fill it with water for washing. Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and feet from it. Hands and feet, not just their hands. See, we're sophisticated people. We just go and wash our hands and we're good to go. No. In the temple, the, the Kohanim had to wash their hands and feet before, if they are not to die. They must wash with the water of this wash, wash basin before entering the tent of the sanctuary or approaching the altar to perform the divine service, presenting a fire offering to God. What the verse is saying very clearly is that if they do not wash themselves, wash their hands and their feet before approaching the altar to offer a sacrifice or to go into the sanctuary for any of the services, they will die. We're dealing with live ammo here. Okay? The holy temple is not just some you know, cool place that you want to go into. This is If you don't go in the right way, you're in trouble, in serious trouble. And one of the things that are so important to the temple service that is washing our hands and feet from the wash, the, the copper wash basin. All right. Let's, uh, let's continue. The purpose of the wash basin, this is from the other. The purpose of the wash basin is to purify the priest before he enters the tabernacle to offer a sacrifice or prostrate himself in the worship before God. By, by the way, wait a second. what's up with the feet? Why are they washing their feet? Why don't we wash our feet? Overseas, they didn't wear feet. There you go. Well, very observant. They were barefoot. Right? No, a Kayan that was working in the Holy Temple was not allowed to wear shoes. They were barefoot. Um, in fact, if they would wear shoes, then any service that they did in the temple was disqualified. So they're going barefoot, right? So the hands and their feet have to be washed. Right? The feet are, are part and parcel of this uh, of this service. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. This emphasis on the feet. Anyway, the purpose of the wash basin is to purify the priest before he enters the tabernacle to offer a sacrifice or prostrate himself in worship before God, entering the tabernacle without an express purpose is forbidden. So anytime you walk into the tabernacle and you're going there for a purpose, you have to wash yourself. Before entering, he would first wash his hands and feet. But by the way, you know how they would do it? They wouldn't just wash their hands and then wash their feet. They had to you ever try this in gymnastics? Trying to touch your toes while when you were 12. All right, so a kayan, this is pretty awesome stuff. A kayan, in order to, you know, just getting into the holy temple, he had to do this. He had to place his hands on his feet, but he wasn't allowed to sit. 
So while he was standing, his hands had to be on his feet and he would wash both of them at the same time from the from the key or from the wash base. Just it's an, it's an important thing to, to know. Why? I don't know, but it's an important thing to know. Yeah. By the way, working in the holy temple was no easy thing. You have to, you know, a police officer always has to be fit. You know, if you're in the army, you have to be fit, and your special forces you also have to be fit. A courier had to be fit. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying they were weightlifting, but in order the Levites, no. No, the Levites weren't going barefoot. <laughs> I don't mix up a bunch of things. No, 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 don't worry. Don't worry about that. They do it before Berkat Kholanim, the fact that the Levite washes the hand of the coin is not because in the Holy Temple the Levite washed their hands. It's a, it's a different thing. There's in general, the Levite was there to assist the Kohenim in their service. So nowadays, what's the service that the Kayanim do? They bless. So in preparation for blessing, but uh, and if there's no Levite around and the Kayan does it himself, he's also it's okay. No, no big deal. No big deal. The Torah states: make a copper wash basin along with a copper base for it. The wash basin was not made of gold or silver, but of copper, the cheapest of metals. We're talking here about the one that was made in the, in the desert. That was made of copper. It's very possible that in, in later generations that wasn't all copper. It's very possible that wash basin was gold, silver, and things like that. But at least the one that Meshar being made was made of copper. You know that, uh, for example, the menorah. This is just a you know fun fact. The menorah. It says in the Torah. It says no, you made of gold, right? The menorah wasn't always of gold. In in fact, in fact, when the Maccabees, I'm like completely going out of order here, but when the Maccabees won the war and you know the whole story of Hanukkah and all that. So the story of Hanukkah sounds as if these Maccabees came in and they lit this beautiful golden menorah. That's not true. Simply not true. The golden candelabra that was there beforehand was stolen. The, the Greeks took it away. So what did they light? They set up some type of wooden thing that had seven you know, cups to serve as candles. In other words, it had the basic halachic uh, you know, uh, details that were there in order for it to be considered the mitzvah, but they were there. It was, it was a, it took time and then they, they made it of metal and then of silver and then finally gold. If it's of gold, that's when it has to boil, how the Torah describes it. So, anyway, again, with this, with this basin, one that they did in the desert, that was, with, that was copper, right? There are other basins that they made later on, it's possible that it was gold, it could be the upgraded and things like that. But anyway, we're going to focus on the one that was made in the desert and how it's expressed in the Torah. Which copper was used for the wash basin? Oh, copper. Copper is copper. No, this wasn't any simple copper. What? Exactly. You'll see. So the Torah, so so uh, our sages tell us like this. Actually, the Torah says, the Torah says this uh, in a later parasha, Parashas by Yaakov. That's in two weeks. It says the mirrors of the women who set up the legions. Marois Hatsoivois. What does that mean? Mirrors of the women who set up the legions. Ready for a story? Listen to this. As, as our sages explained, the Jewish women even donated their mirrors, which were made of shining copper. Moses rejected them at first, seeing them as representing temptation. 
But God told him to accept them because it was those mirrors that helped bring the next generation of the Jewish people into existence. Remember the story? Well, let's go into this. Source number two. Um, so this is from Vayakil, right? From the two, in two parshas. So he says like this. Uh, and he made the wash basin of copper and its base of copper from the mirrors of the women who had set up the legions who congregated at the entrance of the tent of the sanctuary. So Rashi says like this. Israelite women owned mirrors which they would look into when they adorned themselves, right? Right on. Women have mirrors. Even these mirrors they did not hold back from bringing as a contribution toward the tabernacle. So fine, great, very nice. They're being very gracious. They're bringing their mirrors. But Moses rejected them. That was for me? Oh, thank you. Uh, but Moses rejected them because they were made for temptation. We'll see soon in a second. God said to him, accept them, for these are more precious to me than anything. Because through them, the women set up many legions through the children they gave birth to in Egypt. What's the story? What's going on here? When their husbands were, so here, let, let's go back to Egypt. Just remember, we're talking here about a free nation, and they're, they're so free that they're building this sanctuary, this tabernacle for God. Just barely, you know, a half a year earlier, they were, uh, a few months earlier, they were slaves. What was going on then? When their husbands were weary from backbreaking labor. It wasn't just backbreaking labor. They were kind of separated from their wives. The, the, the Egyptians drove them out of their homes. They kept them away for months on end. Basically, they wanted to control their population. So the women would go and bring them food and drink and give them to eat. Then they would take the mirrors and each one would see herself with her husband in the mirror. And she would seduce him with words saying, I am more beautiful than you. Basically, they, they, they were basically trying to get their husbands to make them pregnant. And in this way, they aroused their husband's desire and would copulate with them, conceiving and giving birth there, as it is said, under the apple tree I aroused them. This is the meaning of the mirrors of those who set up legions. So these weren't just any old mirrors. These weren't just the mirrors that these women happened to have. They had some serious history. It was through these mirrors that the generation that left Egypt even existed. That's what these, that was the role that these mirrors played. Now, when the women brought their mirrors for the temple, so Moses was like, look, I mean, this is great, but the temple, like, this is not the place for it. In other words, even though it was mitzvah, even though the temptation that these mirrors represented was a mitzvah-oriented temptation, at the end of the day, you know, certain things are appropriate in certain places, and that's it. So Moses was hesitant. He wanted to reject those mirrors. He wanted to say, like, thank you, but no, thank you. Not here. Keep them at home. God said, no. No, no, no. In fact, I like that. This is a great idea. That the welcome to the, to the temple service is specifically from a wash basin that is made from copper that was that served as mirrors for the Jewish women to ensure that the next generation of Jews exist. To God, there was nothing more precious. So what is the connection? Oh, that ever we'll get to the hands and feet in a second. But this is Oh, you're going to Kabbalah. Hold on. No, no, no. no. This, that's Kabbalah. Here's the apple tree. No, no, no. This, the, idea is, the idea here is that they were out in the field and in the orchards. That's where they conceived and that's where they gave birth because doing it at home was right, Nate? Eh? 
You can't do something that goes with something else and be permissive. So here we're saying that if you wash your hands and feet, that's exactly what Moses said. Wait a second, this is not, I'm just asking. Interesting question. I think the difference here is that they would like melt down the copper or whatever. I mean, it, would, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be the original thing anymore. Yeah, it's, it's starting from first. Yeah, but but at the end of the day, to Moses, he was like, "There's a lot of symbolism here with these mirrors. Keep them home. You know what I'm saying? Everything in its right place." And God says, "This is the place. This is where I want them." In other words, they they represent much more than just the next generation. They represent a certain uh, faith that the women had. Why, why would the women be so desperate to have more children? They're all being killed. They were slaves. Why should why should they bring more kids into a world where they're where they're, where they're slaves? They had faith. They knew that the children they're bringing into the world will be free. The children they're bringing into the world will see Sinai, will come to the land of Israel. So it's much more than just you know growing the family, growing the nation, things like that. They had tremendous faith. We'll see how this plays out later, later on in the, in, the, in the theme that we're going to be talking about. Okay, so page six. It's nice to talk about a temple that existed thousands of years ago. Yeah, page six. Are you at seven? Or up to six. You're getting ahead of yourself. There you go. Um, so um, it's nice to talk about a temple that existed thousands of years ago. But what does it have to do with me today? On Friday, I had a conversation with someone. He said, okay, Rabbi, let's hear about Torah. Tell me what the parasha is about and why I should care. Oh, now that's a challenge. <laughs> why I should, I love it. He's like, tell me what the parasha is about and why I should care. The fact that he got on the phone with me, that already means that he cares. But okay, why I should care. So the same thing will be here. Thank you, God. Thank you, Moses. Thank you, Torah. You're telling me about this tabernacle that happened thousands of years ago. Why should I care? So, page six. Therein lies a lesson for every single person. The destruction of the temple only occurred with regard to the physical temple. However, there is a temple within the heart of every single Jew. As God said, I will dwell in their midst, within every person. The existence of that temple is dependent on the person himself. If one invests the necessary effort, his temple will remain standing. If not, have you ever seen a building that's neglected? It ain't fun. And just giving it a certain determination that it's a special building doesn't help. If you don't invest in the building, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, not, it's not nice. It's an eyesore. Now, this temple needs to be built from a variety of physical materials, just as the physical tabernacle was built from gold, silver, copper, and so on. In other words, the goal is to make the material world into a dwelling place for God. As we've often explained at length, that, that is the purpose of the Torah, to make the world a holy place, a holy temple. All right. So now, so we know two things. Number one, that we are creating the temple within ourselves. And we have to create that temple in, a, in the same way that the temple was made in the desert. How did they make the temple of the desert? Not by learning Kabbalah. Not by meditation. See, I'm bashing the other class. Not by meditation. They needed physical stuff. Gold, silver, copper, wood, yeah, diamonds. They needed all these things. So the following question arises. When we are involved with the mundane it is unlikely that we will remain aloof and unaffected. 
right? So the, the fact of the matter is you have to invest in building your own temple. But that temple has to be made with physical elements, with materialism. That means I need to be engaged in the material world. So how do I ensure that my engagement in the material world doesn't make me too material? Right? And how holy can I be when I'm engaged with materialism? By human nature, when you fight with the dirty person, you become soiled yourself, right? Let, let's say you have to fight it and, and you win. At the end of the day, you stand up from the fight. What do you look like? A disaster, right? You come, you come home. Your mom is going to slap you just for ruining the shirt, right? So if, if, you, if you fight, if you, if, you, if you wrestle with someone dirty, you become dirty. What are we wrestling with on a daily basis? Materialism, the physical world. So how, that, that sullies us, that soils us. In that state, how can we enter the holy temple? So like we're demanding two opposites from the person. Build the temple within you. And that is specifically through engaging in the mundane, in the materialism, and at the same time, go into a holy temple. How can you walk into a holy temple in the right mode, with the right purity, if you're engaged with the materialism? The Mishnah states that if one has mud on his feet, he is forbidden even from entering the temple mount. So what do you do? The resolution is to wash oneself before entering the temple. Okay. So we have a temple, and that temple is specifically through engaging in the mundane. At the same time, it's a holy temple. So how do you bridge these two things, dealing with the mundane, and at the same time, being worthy of walking into or being part of the experience of the holy temple? For that, you got to wash. What do you have to wash? What are we supposed to wash? We wash the parts of our bodies that are most heavily involved in mundane affairs. And what is that? Our hands and feet. Now you think like well, this sounds very like simple. And I don't know. That was, it's actually very interesting. The feet transport the person into the world. The person naturally finds himself in the holy temple, in a place of Torah study and prayer, in a place of Torah study and prayer. And it is his feet which lead him into the world. It is his feet which quite literally stand directly on the ground. Okay, so feet of the person represent two things. Number one, that's what takes us away from the holy space. It takes us away from, an, from, from the environment of Torah. Brings us into a different environment, into a distracting environment, into the mundane environment. And also the feet are that part of the body that's actually on the earth. <coughs> that's the first you know, connection. That, that, that's the way you connect to earth. Okay. Then, so, so the feet, I say, you know, I've got feet on the ground, and they take you places, right? Outside of this realm of holiness, into the place of the mundane. But then you have the hands. What are the hands? The hands are the middlemen between the individual and the world, through which you take from the world and through which you contribute to it. It's all about the hands. That's how you do the handshake, and that's how you give money, and that's how you sign checks, and that's how you tweet, and that's how you deal with your telephone. It's all with the hands, right? Everything. You take out your credit card with the hand. It's all about the hand. Um, so, so he says, with regard to the hand, this is how you take from the world, and this is how you contribute to the world. So, so listen to this. You know, in general, when it comes to Torah, Torah thought, Torah study, everything borrows from everything. Okay, you know, you, you could be learning a concept in Hasidic, you could be learning a concept in Jewish mysticism. Like all of a sudden, like it borrows a term from a mission. 
The Mishnah is talking about law. The Mishnah is talking about you know something very practical. And you're talking about something that's quite abstract. But but the I say when you, you the, the the use of the expression from the Mishnah brings richness to what you're learning here in the abstract and and brings richness to the Mishnah itself. We'll, we'll see here. There's a tractate that you didn't get up to yet. Okay, you didn't get up to that one. I know you're, you're a Talmudic scholar, but <laughs> um, the tractate Shabbos, all about Shabbat. They didn't do that one yet, right? It's, a, it's, it's a, you know, it's a lot of pages. There's a lot going on over there. A lot of chapters. The very first Mishnah, the very first chapter, talks about the the prohibition on Shabbos of taking objects from a private domain to a public domain. Right? And that's why we have a Shabbos belt and different things. You shouldn't be taking objects from a private domain to a public domain. We have to check our pockets before we walk outside, etc. So the Mishnah expresses the ideas in a story format. Okay? It's like this. Source 3. Uh, the acts of carrying out from a public domain into a private domain which are prohibited on Shabbat. For example, so here's the story that the Mishnah says. The poor person stands outside and the homeowner stands inside. So inside is a private domain, the home or, the, or, a, or a, an enclosed uh, yard, an enclosed uh, yeah, yard. Um, and the poor person is standing in the street, which is a public domain. The poor person extended his hand inside and placed an object into the hand of the homeowner. That's prohibited. The homeowner extended his hand outside and placed an object into the hand of the poor person. That's also prohibited, right? So obviously, what are we ta- what are we describing? We're describing charity, right? The homeowner giving to the poor person, the poor person giving something to the homeowner. Like first of all, if it's just about charity, so it should only be from the homeowner to the poor person. But anyway, this, the story that's being told here is that someone in the private domain is handing something to someone in the public domain, and vice versa. Okay. So that's how the Mishnah chooses to describe it. Now, by the way, it's, it's interesting that the Mishnah chooses to describe it in this way. Usually the Mishnah is very good at just saying things the way they are. Can't bring it from private domain to public domain. Can't bring it from public domain to private domain. Here he tells us a story. Because in this story of the halacha, the law of Shabbos, there is something more to the story. Something more is happening here. The homeowner is a metaphor. The poor person is a metaphor. The home, the private domain is a metaphor, and the public domain is also a metaphor. So what? And in fact, this, this uh, interesting metaphor comes from uh, the Magid, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad. So he, he was, his father was a student of the Baal Shem Tov, but the Alter Rebbe didn't know about that. He was unaware of the Baal Shem Tov. He was unaware of the whole Hasidic movement until he was uh, about 15 years old, approximately. And then he was already married, by the way. By then he was a genius and he was a very well-known scholar. And he decided to go and like try out different uh, methods of, of study. Um, and it's an interesting story, actually. He was at a crossroads. He said there are two big centers of learning. There's Vilna and there's Mizrich. He said, I heard that in Vilna, they teach you how to learn. In Mizrich, they teach you how to dive, how to pray. Obviously, we don't mean learning like, you know, you're able to learn the olive base and the basic stuff. And dabbing don't mean that you're able to open up the book and read words. We're talking about it in a deeper sense. So the Altarev, you know, rationalized himself. He said, look, learning, I know. 
<laughs> that he knew. Davening, I'm curious, what's that all about? What's davening all about? So he decided to go to Mizrich. Came to Mizrich, came to the Magid, the leader of the Hasidic movement. He came in. They were reading the same books. They were reading the same Mishnah. They were reading this Mishnah of, of the Yitzhiyah, Sashabas, of you know, how, how the poor person and the rich person. But the translation was very different. There was a whole new current going on over there. And this is actually what, what caught the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe became the Alter Rebbe. There is a well, so let's see, the Rebbe kind of brings it, uh, says it very cryptically, but there is a well-known Hasidic interpretation to the Mishnah regarding the poor man standing outside and the homeowner standing inside. The homeowner represents God. He's the homeowner of the, of the world, right? He's the Balabayit. He's the owner of the home. And the poor man outside represents the person who was sent to fulfill his mission in the physical world. See, the homeowner, he is in a reshus hayochid, in a private domain. What does that mean? <clears throat> when you're in God's presence, when you're in God's domain, there's only one thing. What is that? God. Right? You know, you know that song, Who Knows One? Who Knows One? I Know One. One is God. That's a big statement. One, only God. In, in, in God's presence, there's no, there's no duplicity. There's nothing. Only one. That's called Rishus Hayachid. That's the private domain. That's the domain of the oneness, of the unity, of the one and single God, right? Where everything is united in God. Now, our world is a world of diversity, duplicity. Our, um, our world, the reality we live in, the physical, material reality we live, God is hidden. Right? We talk about this a lot on time. God is hidden over there. So we're like the poor, we're the paupers. And where are we? We're in the public domain, right? So we're, we got a handle with this public domain. However, there is always a, there is always a communication. There's a, there's a constant you know, uh, communication between the private domain and the public domain. It's not like in the private domain, he just closes off his doors and that's it. No one's allowed in. No, no, there's constant communication. Sometimes the homeowner extends his hand to the outside, expressing his love for his people. And the poor man extends his hand to the inside with the intention of moving something from the world into the godly domain. So this is there's something actually very profound happening in this Mishnah. You're right. Private domain and public domain is not exclusively home street. There's a lot of different variations for private domain and public domain. And it's important to know this in order to understand how to keep Shabbos properly. However, the Mishnah is communicating to us this halacha, while at the same time communicating to us a very profound message of what this world is all about. Our world, the world, are these two domains the domain of God, holiness, and the domain of materialism. And sometimes the holiness from God is being extended towards us, that we should be inspired. And we have an obligation to start moving things from the domain of materialism into God's world. As the famous Hasidic saying, God creates physicality from the spiritual. God takes spirituality and turns it into the physical world in order that we should take the physical world and make it spiritual. God allows this world to come into being with all of its coarseness and its materialism in order that we should take that and elevate it, reveal its true purpose. 
reveal its true um, its its true um, its true identity that it's part of God. So this constant back and forth from the private domain to the public domain, the public domain to the private domain, and how do we do it? With our hands, right? That's what the Mishnah says that the the oni, the poor person, extends his hand and brings it into. Uh, he, he bring, with his hand, he brings it into. I just lost my pages here. Into the private domain. Yeah, but where did my pages go here? Oh, there we are. Okay. Those portions. So, page nine. Those portions of the body which come into contact with the physical world, the legs which lead a person into the world, and the hands through which a person interacts with the world, need to be cleansed. And the big question is, how? What does that mean that they are cleansed? How does one go about this cleansing? So obviously we're talking here in a metaphoric way. This is this is all a metaphor because we're not talking about an actual temple. That temple was destroyed. We're not talking about an actual wash basin because we're not talking about a physical temple. We're talking about the temple inside of me. And that temple has to be built through my engagement of the domain. My problem is how do I kind of bridge this gap between the materialism that I'm meant to engage with and the holiness of the temple. And the answer to that is the same way when a, when a Kayin came into the holy temple, how was he ready to walk in? Specifically through cleansing. What did he cleanse? The hands and the feet, which worked perfectly because in this metaphor of me creating a holy temple within myself, my hands and feet are actually very involved in this, um, in, in this uh, journey because I need my feet to take me out from the holiness from the holy space of learning and davening to bring me into the mundane world. My feet are the ones that are actually on the ground. That's my connection to the coarseness and materialism of the world. And my hands are what I use in order to engage with the world, to bring the world into God's holy domain. What do I need to ensure? That these hands and feet are cleansed. How do you do that? What's the idea? How does one go about this cleansing? According to Jewish law, this cleansing entails pouring water on one's hands and feet. The physical hands and feet remain in place while the dust and the dirt upon them are washed away when enough water is used. So we're not getting rid of hands and feet. We're not getting rid of our connection with the mundane world. We're just washing away the dirt. We're washing away any issues that attach themselves. In other words, the hands and feet aren't bad. The hands and feet aren't essentially dirty. Our involvement with the mundane world isn't essentially dirty, but dirt gets, gets onto it. As reflected in our lives, Maimonides writes that a person should seek to immerse himself in the pure waters of wisdom and the study of godliness, which is taught in Hasidism. By nature, such water has the power to wash one's hands and feet the elements of the body which interact with the world and to wash away one's worldly perspective, strengthening the godly soul, which is a part of God above. So what is the water that we're talking about here? The pure wisdom, the pure waters of wisdom, which is referring specifically to Jewish mysticism, to chassidus. What happens with chassidus? What happens? Your hands remain hands and your feet remain feet. You're still connected with the world. You're not expected to become a monk. 
You're not expected to seclude yourself. Huh? Good. Yeah. You're not expected to, you know, seclude yourself from the world. You're not expected to despise the world. You're not expected to run away from materialism. Still deal with the world and everything. However, you're going to deal with it entirely differently because your perspective of the world, your priorities are going to change drastically. You're still going to have the same responsibilities. You'll still have the same uh, relationship with the world, but with an entirely different perspective. You're going to do the same motions, the same functions, in a whole different manner. What's the difference between clean hands and dirty hands? Essentially nothing, right? A, a clean hand can, can uh, take a hammer and knock a nail, and a dirty hand can do the same thing, right? But clean is obviously better. Why? Because then it's, then it's worthy of being in a holy temple. So even though the hand is still doing the same functions, even though the feet are still taking you to the same places, when they are clean, when they are, when they, when they are brainwashed, let's put it this way, when they, when they are completely whitewashed with the purifying waters of Hasidus, the engagement with the world is on an entirely different way. The perspective is different. Why is that different? Because the study, okay, so that's a good question. Huh? Oh no! So the study of Torah in general, most parts of the, I mean, in other words, the, the revealed part of Torah, the, the halachic aspect, etc., is dealing, you know, with 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 uh, with the physical world very directly. I, when I was when I was a young, uh, I was a teenager. So as an older man, said he, he he had the custom that he would go to a Talmud shir every morning. Talmud shir, we learn every day. Before before prayers, because you can you can only pray I don't know, six thirty seven o'clock, so people have to be at work already at eight. So if you want to study in the morning, you have to study before before davening. You study in the time that you can daven, and then you daven. Anyways, he was telling us. He says, you know, sometimes you get to certain parts of the tractates. You know, the, the things we're dealing with over there. I mean, I can understand why your choice of study before prayer is chesedus. <laughs> says I I get it. I get it. Because sometimes just just the, the topics that we're dealing with, they're just very very mundane. Obviously, it's halacha. Obviously, it's Talmud. So it's, it's holy, but but the entire topic is extremely mundane. It's very, it's very technical and very physical, etc. So when you're when you're getting very deeply involved in the nitty gritty details of, of of a physical and mundane issue, as it is illuminated by halacha, your mind is not thinking. In an elevated and inspired way. So, so therefore, when after, after learning Talmud, your, your perspective on the world doesn't change. You just look at the world in more of a technical light now. Is this kosher or not kosher? Is this permitted or prohibited? And things like that. But you don't you don't see something else in the world now. You don't see a new element. You don't see a new a new layer. When you learn Chsidis, Chsidis tells you you're looking at the table. But do you realize that the table is, is only brought into being through God's words? And it doesn't just tell you these things. It explains it. And especially when you meditate on it, you're now putting a plug. When you meditate on these issues, so then you, you actually start to think differently. It's the same table. It's the same ceiling, the same chair, the same bicycle. It's all the same. 
but your entire mode has, has completely changed. I say, your hands are exactly the same. They just clean them. Now they're clean. When the hands and feet become clean, a person can fulfill his role in the world to make everything in this world, whether gold, silver, or copper, into a dwelling place for God. In other words, this, this change of perspective is, is key, is crucial to creating this temple. Before I said, you have to create a temple. Good. Through what? With the mundane of the world. But you're trying to take the mundane, you're trying to make it holy. It's not enough to get it right technically. You also have to be in a holy mode. The hands and feet that are involved with the mundane have to be clean, have to be whitewashed, have to be purified. And how are they purified? Through the pure perspective that comes through the study of Chassidus. And this is the lesson. You don't need to be a brilliant intellectual. You don't need something made of gold or silver. It could be from a cheap metal like copper. As long as the donation is, in the words of the verse, a donation of the heart. But the effort comes from within a pure Jewish heart. It has the power to wash off all the dirt and mud that collected on his hands and feet. A very interesting thing here. People would write to the Rebbe that they, they find it very difficult to learn time. Why? They feel that they're not getting the real depth. You know, they're reading Tanya and they're, they're understanding it very basic, very, you know, surface level. The Rebbe writes to them, that's fine. That's fine. Learn at surface level, but be involved. When your heart is involved in time. Even, in, in other words, in order to wash your hands and feet, you don't have to be a sophisticated mystic. You don't have to know everything that there is to know about this mystical idea. Is that anyone's here? It doesn't bother me. It makes me feel like I'm in New York. You know, when, when I listen to... When I listen... No, I don't think it's yours. When I, when I listen to classes from like, you know, the, the, the big Hasidic uh, masters in New York, always you hear these, these sirens in the background. Ooh, you know, it's all police or... I guess. What do I do? I'll do that. All right. No problem. Maybe. Maybe. No, I'm sure you will. Um, in, order, in order for Hasidus to work, you don't have to be the gold standard. You don't have to be, you know, the, 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 greatest, uh, the greatest mind in order for the purifying waters of chassidus to purify your hands and feet. All you need is that it should be done with sincerity. When the women brought these, these uh, mirrors, right? Well, first of all, did they bring nothing too sophisticated? It was copper. It was, it was simple mirrors that they had a slave woman. That's what they brought. And they brought it with a certain sincerity. And that is that became like the gold standard for the Kohanim washing their hands and feet before they came into the Holy Temple. Same thing here when it comes to Chassidus. Don't think that you have to know everything in order for it to have an impact. Be like the women in the desert. Be sincere about it. And that sincerity will take that Chassidus a long way. No. No. Not yours. Okay, good. Um... You know, they would say about, about vodka, right? Vodka. You ready? Here, listen to the story about vodka. There was once a chassid that was, that was uh, journeying. He was, he was going, he was, he was traveling to, to the Alter Rebbe. 
It was freezing cold outside and he had his coat and he was walking on the road and uh, a wagon drives by and the, the owner of the wagon, he says, you want to ride? Where are you going? Leoshana, come, come onto the wagon. Now this wagon was filled with big, big barrels of vodka. Anyway, so the chassid jumps onto the wagon. He's, 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 in middle, he's between the barrels and he's freezing, freezing cold. So finally he calls out to the owner. He says, do you mind if I just take a little bit of vodka? Sure, no problem. It's, all, it's fine. You can take. So he goes to one of the, like, the spout and he had, takes a little bit of vodka and he started to warm up inside. So, you know, I mean, you take vodka, it warms you up a bit, no? You'll bet. So when, when he came, when he came to the Rebbe, when he, he was talking to the Chassidim about his experience, he said, I learned something very profound about journey. So it was freezing cold inside, and I was cold, everything was cold. And I was in a wagon surrounded by vodka, surrounded. But I was still freezing cold. I took a little bit of vodka inside and I warmed up. Warmed up. He says, what's the, what's the message here? You can come, you can be surrounded by chassidus, surrounded by mysticism. You can be surrounded by the most inspiring things. But if you don't open up your mouth and take it in, you don't open up your, your head, your, your mind and your heart and allow just a little bit. It doesn't have to be a, 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 a gallon. You don't have to take a gallon of vodka. You don't have to take a gallon of chassidus to get warm. Just take a little bit, but take it in. Let it go inside. Absorb the idea. Make it a part of yourself and do it sincerely. It's going to have an impact. The Torah tells us, and it goes even further. You go into, the Torah tells us something novel, that everyone knew that this vessel was made with the material donated by Jewish women. After a man spends numerous hours engaged in worldly affairs, it's more difficult for him to discern what could become godly and what he should avoid. A woman being the daughter of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah has the, on page 11, has the power through the power of her faith, which is stronger in women than in men, to discern which elements are worldly and must therefore be cleansed and which elements are eligible to be transformed and made into a holy sanctuary for God. The donation of the women might have been only copper the cheapest metal, but it was given with love, it was shiny and beautiful and polished. It is something which, with regards to men, it, it, it is something which, with regards to men, represents unholiness and temptation, but to women, with their pure faith in God, it was something that gave them the power to establish new generations of Jewish people. What's the message here? The message is that when it comes to Approaching our service to God and ensuring that it's clean, ensuring that it's done with the proper perspective. What's most important here is sincerity, pure faith. It doesn't have to be sophisticated. It doesn't have to be the, you know, the, the highest standard. You don't have to be the most brilliant mind. You don't have to have access to the greatest secrets. And as long as it's coming from the purifying waters, as long as it's coming from Hasidus, and you take that little bit in, and you do it with sincerity, at that point, your hands and feet, that about you which is engaged with the mundane world, is done with a proper perspective. And then you could truly take it and make it a holy temple. Every part of your life, every part of your day, could become a holy service. As long as it's done under the impression and inspiration 
of chassidus of the purifying waters. And with that, we're done today's class. Any questions? Yeah. So it's all clear, huh? All right.